talking about church leadership, talking about elders, overseers, pastors, that one office by those three biblical titles. Uh, and this morning we're going to talk about the other office that Jesus has established for his church, the office of deacon. But before we look in detail at that role, I want to talk more broadly a little bit about ministry in the church and remind you of something that I'm I'm sure you know, that ministry is for everybody in the body. And so I want to draw your attention for just a few minutes to Ephesians chapter 4 to remind you of that. The word translated ministry in the New Testament is the word diakonia. Sounds a lot like the English word deacon, uh, but it refers to ministry or service of a variety of kinds. And so we're going to look a little bit at the significance of that for everybody and then narrow our focus and talk about the office of deacon and how that is to be uh, functioning in our body. And so we begin by looking at Ephesians 4, uh, where we'll read about grace for all, ministry for all. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7 is where we begin. Paul writes, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now Paul uses that phrase, grace was given, or grace which was given, twelve times in his letters. In every case, in the context, he describes how... God's grace has resulted in a specific ministry assignment for the person who has received grace. So Ephesians, in Ephesians 4, 7, I think grace was given to each one of us means that God has graciously given every member of the body of Christ a particular ministry assignment. That means... You are not here by accident. God has specially placed you among the people of Alfred Ullman Bible Church. And He's got special work for you to do. God has given each one of you a ministry assignment. It might be a temporary assignment. It might be a series of distinct assignments. Or it might be a lifelong assignment. Only God knows. When we move down a few verses to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, we find Paul focusing in on certain gifts, certain leaders whom Jesus has given to His church. But the focus or the purpose of these leaders is for the benefit of members of the body. Look at those verses, Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. And He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Today we're going to focus on deacons who are not explicitly mentioned in these verses, but the word ministry in verse 12 is the Greek word diakonia. Ministry or service is defined here in this verse as building up the body of Christ. And that's a responsibility given to every member, to all the saints. The leaders given to the church in verse 11 have as their primary calling the equipping, the empowering, the enabling of everybody in the body. But these leaders are only conduits. Leaders are only instruments through whom God extends His grace to the rest of the body. 
There's a whole host of different kinds of ministry, different ways to serve. Serving in the office of deacon is one which we'd like to give some attention to this morning. Some of you men may find that you have been equipped by the Holy Spirit and you are being called by God for this particular ministry assignment. But as for the elder, overseer, or pastor, so for the deacon and so for everyone else. Successful ministry, helpful service, must be empowered by God's grace and aimed at building up the body, strengthening the body's health and maturity. One writer summed it up like this, Elders lead ministry, deacons facilitate ministry, the congregation does ministry. I'll say that again, elders lead ministry, Deacons facilitate ministry. The congregation does ministry. As we talk about deacons this morning, let's remind ourselves that the basic meaning of the term is simply servant. John MacArthur helpfully points out that we use the language of service in a wide range of ways. He says we use it equally to describe a slave who serves his master or a king who serves his people. He goes on to summarize the meaning of the term simply as supplying the need of another person. Supplying the need of another person. Meeting needs is service. And meeting needs is not some kind of lesser function or lesser role in the church. The role of deacon, the office of deacon, is very important in this church. I want to take us back to a passage that we looked at last Sunday and look at it from a little bit of a different angle and draw a couple of other things from it. Acts chapter 6. I'm going to turn there and look at the same verses we looked at last week a little bit. There's some more things to see here. And we talked a little bit about the context of that passage, and I won't repeat all of those details this morning. But we have the issue of a problem raising its head in the church of Jerusalem in the early days of the church. And the apostles, the twelve, provided a solution for that problem by choosing seven other men or having the church choose seven other men to deal with the issue at hand. And so I want to look at that passage one more time and look at it from a slightly different angle. Last week we saw that it shows a pattern that is rooted in the Old Testament for how we select officers or leaders in the body of Christ. And I see another pattern in this text that's helpful for us as we think about the relationship between elders and deacons. I mentioned last week that uh, the seven men who are chosen here are never referred to as deacons. And what they do seems to be slightly different from the way we understand how deacons function. They seem to be more like a, a committee, an ad hoc committee selected to deal with a specific issue for a specific amount of time or a limited amount of time. But the pattern of the division of responsibilities, I think, carries over between elders and deacons. And so that's what we want to look at this morning. The division of spiritual ministry responsibilities. The division of spiritual ministry responsibilities. Look at these verses again, Acts 6, 1 through 6. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. 
And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. So we have an issue that shows that the the responsibilities for ministry need to be divided up among different people. The apostles recognized as their primary calling and their primary gifting to preach the Word of God, to teach the Word of God among the people. Now at this time, up to this point, that's not all they've been doing. They've been handling a host of other issues, it seems. But as the church has grown, it's made it impossible for them to do everything that's needed among this church in Jerusalem. And so the remedy for that situation is to have the body choose seven other men who will take care of this particular need. Now what I want to highlight and focus in on and draw your attention to this morning is that the division of responsibilities here is not between spiritual responsibilities and physical or material responsibilities. Ministry is all spiritual. We've got to come to the place where we we stop separating spiritual from physical as though they were opposites. They are not in the scriptures. They are together always. And so when we talk about ministry, when we talk about diakonia, we have to recognize there's different kinds of ministry, but it is all to be spiritual. There's not one kind of ministry that's more important than another. It's not as though deacons are to be glorified janitors or simply buildings and ground kinds of people. If that were the case, then the Bible would simply qualify them by making sure they have the skills requisite, the physical skills to deal with the physical needs. But instead, the qualifications for deacons are all spiritual qualifications. And the reason for that is because the ministry that they do with physical things very often is to be viewed as spiritual. We don't need to have this dichotomy as though what is physical is only physical. Let me show you what I mean by this. So we have the word ministry appearing in this passage a few times. The apostles speak of their own role as the ministry of preaching God's word in verse 2 and verse 4. And they use the word in verse 4, ministry of the word. That's the Greek word diakonia. And so preaching the word of God is diakonia. It's service. It's ministry. But so is everything else that's going on here. Verses 1 and 2, the word diakonia appears a couple of times for the daily distribution at the end of verse 1. That's, that word distribution is the word diakonia, ministry. And so there's a ministry that's going on that's providing food and resources for these widows. That is service, ministry. The same word applies to the preaching of the word of God as applies to the handing out of food to these widows. It's the same thing. Both are to be viewed as spiritual ministry. 
And so what I'd like to do this morning is frame our understanding of what deacons are and what deacons do in terms of spiritual ministry of meeting physical needs. Spiritual ministry of meeting physical needs. They are not two separate things. The best way for me to explain this, I think, is to give some examples. I didn't ask for the deacon's permission, and I didn't tell him I was going to do this, and they probably wouldn't like it that I did, so I'll ask for your forgiveness later instead of the permission that I might have should have asked first. But I'm going to give you an example of service ministry that I have seen from each of the six of our deacons and try to help you see how what they were doing in that case was spiritual ministry, not just meeting a physical need. It was spiritual ministry. So when Dennis Morrow reset the parking lot lights so that they come on very early in the morning and they are on at night when we're all here gathered on Sunday nights... That was meeting a physical need. You actually set up the technology so the lights come on at the right time and they stay on for the right length of time. That involved his hands and his technical expertise. But that was spiritual ministry because it ensures, or at least it helps ensure, that when I come up here very early in the morning before the sun is up, that I'm less likely to crash into the pole out there or run into the steps with my car. And if I did that, that would prevent me from engaging with the spiritual ministry that I need to do when I come into this building very early in the morning sometimes. And so what he does in facilitating the lights out there enables us to gather together, like on Sunday nights when people are here. The safety, the physical safety of this body is a spiritual need. And if we're not meeting that physical need, then the spiritual need doesn't get met either. They are united and interfaced. Or when Ron Godown climbed a ladder to change a light bulb in this auditorium at great cost to himself, as I understand it, that was meeting a physical need. It was changing a light bulb, but it, it, it facilitates spiritual ministry so that you this morning are able to see your Bible, so that you this morning are able to see each other well. I know we've got windows and we've got natural light and all that jazz, but if nobody ever changed the light bulbs... It would be a much darker place. And the engaging with people that goes on in this place every week and more than that would not be able to happen. Or when Dale Vance allocates funds in his spreadsheet or carries money to the bank that's contributed here, funds contributed here, he is engaging in a spiritual ministry, taking care of the finances of this body, making sure that they're allocated in a way that they can be used for spiritual purposes and to meet spiritual needs. It just got brighter in here all of a sudden. <laughs> but what, what these guys are doing is facilitating spiritual ministry by meeting these physical needs. When Charlie Dybert mows the lawn, that is meeting a physical need but it's also facilitating spiritual ministry. Because can you imagine if nobody ever mowed the lawn? The, I mean, right now it's not needed. But in the summertime, the weeds would grow and creatures would hide in the grass. And use your imagination. We'd all get eaten. Some of your imaginations would go there more regularly than others. But it's a safety issue. Physical safety? Well, if the physical safety is not there, the spiritual things don't happen either. When Mike Lasnick thinks through the best way to heat this room and this building during the winter, that is a meeting a physical need, but it is spiritual ministry. 
if it were freezing in here, you would be much more distracted than you are anyway, I suspect. If you're shivering, it's hard to focus on what somebody is saying. So that's meeting a physical need that is spiritual ministry. When Steve Crandall interfaces with a man calling our church to request financial assistance, he's not just writing a check to meet a man's needs. He's having a conversation with that man that determines where are you at spiritually and are you engaged with the body of Christ in any way. Yes, there's the meeting of the physical need. There's the writing of a check. But it goes further than that. It's not just about paying a bill or meeting a need that way. It's about the spiritual nature of a man in his circumstances, with his problems. That is all spiritual reality that we're engaging with here. The word spiritual in English, in our common usage, is fuzzy. And that's the problem. We talk about spiritual things out in the world, and it means all kinds of weird stuff. And it can mean ethereal, vague, non-physical. But when you read the Bible... And when the Bible uses the language of spiritual, it's always, or almost always, talking specifically about the work of the Holy Spirit, particularly in the New Testament in Paul's letters. You read the word spiritual in your Bible, you ought to take a pencil and capitalize it if it's not already. So remind you that we're talking about not just things that are not physical, because here's the thing. The Spirit of God changes physical circumstances. If, there's, if you've ever heard of or ever experienced healing, physical healing, whether, whether through the means of surgeon's skill or in, an in, in a directly miraculous fashion, in either case, God gets the credit and it was the Spirit of God making the physical stuff change, making the surgery effective, making the medicine work. The Spirit of God doesn't just deal in spiritual matters as though it's just about you know, hearing the Word of God and praying. Those are spiritual things. Have you ever th- thought about that? When you listen to the Word of God or when you read it, don't you use your physical eyeballs and your physical ears? And when you pray, don't you use your physical mouth? Or at least your brain, which is a physical thing. It's that thing that's kept inside your skull. Right? There is no separation between spirit and body. They are meant to be in harmony and united. And so don't think that we're talking talking about, well, the elders deal with shepherding and preaching the Word of God, that that's spiritual ministry. And the deacons, well, they make sure the, the lawn is mown and the building is taken care of and that's all physical. No. Both are spiritual and both are incredibly significant to the functioning and health of this body. And I hope you see that. I hope you see that. And so when we see in Acts 6 this division of ministry responsibilities, it's not a division between spiritual and physical. It's simply a division of two kinds of spiritual ministry. Spiritual service that has incredible spiritual significance for a person's life and growth in their faith in Jesus. It's not just about what you can see with your eyeballs and what you can touch with your hands. It is very much spiritual reality. And I hope the deacons think of their work that way. And if they didn't before today, I hope they do now. Your work, your service to this body is incredibly valuable and incredibly significant beyond just what we can see with our eyes. 
Now, as we press on, I want to look and talk some about deacons' qualifications. So we can turn in our Bibles to 1 Timothy 3. We looked at qualifications for elders, overseers, and pastors last week, but we just read them and left them there, by and large, for you to explore and consider. I'm going to expound a bit on these qualifications for deacons, uh, but I want the elders and those who may be elders someday to listen up as well, because everything, every qualification of a deacon is also a qualification for an elder. So what I say this morning about qualifications for deacons is also true of qualifications for elders. There are more of them for elders and overseers and pastors, but everything that's said about the deacons is also said about elders and overseers and pastors. Okay, so I'm going to open that up just a bit this morning, talk about some of these specific qualifications. But before we look at the details, I do want to remind you of something that I'm sure you know, but if not, let me just grab your attention real quick, because this is not just for the men in the room who might be deacons someday. This is for everybody in the body. These qualifications are things that all believers should aspire to at one level, one level or another, male or female. I'll quote John MacArthur again, He says, although specific personal and spiritual qualifications must be met by those in the offices of elder and deacon, that doesn't mean that the standard is lower for anyone else in the congregation. Everyone should seek to be in the role of a deacon, whether he is a recognized office-holding deacon or simply a servant to the body. And thus, every believer should be on the way to meeting the qualifications specified in 1 Timothy 3. Now, I talked about this a little bit last week, but I was helped this week by a phrase that I heard that really crystallized the way that we ought to approach these things. If you were here last week, you might remember how I said, we need to be careful about how we treat this list of qualifications. We don't need to see it as a legalistic list. We don't need to treat it as some kind of checklist that can be easily marked off of an individual. But instead... We need to think about these qualifications over a pattern of, or over a, the course of time as a kind of pattern of life. And the phrase that I heard was from Pastor John Prince when he preached on this passage many, many years ago now. He, the phrase that he used is that these qualities are to be consistent and progressing. Not perfect, but consistent and progressing. I really thought that was very clarifying and exactly right about the way that we should approach these qualifications. We should look at a man's life over the course of time, recognizing that none of us, none of us, meet these qualifications perfectly all the time. Instead, we're looking for a pattern of life. And we're saying, do these qualifications mark this man over the course of time? The idea of consistency and progression implies that we could look at a man's life and we could say, well, he is weaker in some of these areas. We're not looking for someone to to be an excellent paragon of all of these virtues all of the time. If we were, we should just give up searching for them. No offense to any of you men, but I know myself well enough to know that I am not an excellent paragon of the virtues listed here all the time. I, list, I mentioned an example, and I could mention others, of how I fall short of this qualification list at times. But again, look at the pattern of my life and evaluate how I respond when I do fail, and then judge for yourselves. 
That's the way to think about these kinds of things. So let's look at these qualifications, and I'll comment on each of them uh, briefly. Uh, Let's read 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 through 13. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus." So I'm going to do this a little bit out of order. I want to start with verse 10, actually, because what Paul says in verse 10 here gives kind of an overarching statement that is almost an umbrella term, and he gives it kind of in the middle, so it's a strange spot. But he says in verse 10, let them also be tested first. And that word also sitting there probably implies what we would all assume to be the case anyway, that an elder should also be tested. I think Paul wrote verses 1 through 7 talking about the qualifications for elders or overseers or pastors with the implication that's, I hope, rather obvious that they must be tested to determine if they meet these qualifications. And here he states it explicitly in the case of deacons, but he says also to say, yeah, the elders have to be tested first too, but deacons in particular, and I suspect that he says it explicitly here about deacons because it, it might be easy for people to assume that de- uh, to assume wrongly that the office of deacon is a lesser office and it's not Im- as important that they meet these qualifications. And so he states it outright to make it clear, no, this office is just as important as the office of elder. It serves a different function. But these men must meet these qualifications, and they must be shown, it must be visible that they meet these qualifications. Let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. I think what he means there by blameless is blameless with respect of this list of qualifications. And again, now you might hear the word blameless, you say, well, that sounds like perfect, without blame, without accusation. Again, I don't think he means that. I think he means that you look at the pattern of a man's life and you could look and say at that pattern and say he fits this mold without being able to be accused by others that he doesn't. So it is, there is a high standard here. There is a high standard here that people could look at your life and say he fits the bill. He meets these qualifications and... I don't see him breaking this mold by the pattern of his life. But again, it's that pattern issue. Has he ever failed to be dignified? Probably. Has he ever failed in his usage of his tongue? James says we all do, so probably has. But again, we're looking at the pattern of life. 
So let's look at the specifics then. If blameless is the overarching category, blameless in what areas? Number one, first of all, he's to be dignified back in verse 8. What does that mean? Well, dignified, he carries himself with dignity. There's a seriousness about this man with respect to his relationship with the Lord and his service to the church. Now, that doesn't mean that the man can't be silly at times. At least I hope not, because I've been accused of being silly at times, particularly with my daughter. And I will not excuse myself for that. It's okay to, be, to have fun, And to be silly at times. But there is a dignity about a man who serves in this role. That he carries himself with seriousness when it comes to his relationship with the Lord and his service of the church. He's not frivolous with his responsibilities or with his character. He's not flippant about the way that he carries himself or the way that he treats other people. So he must be dignified. Secondly, he must not be double-tongued. Interesting word. Literally, the Greek, the Greek word is dilagos. Literally would be two-worded, two words. The idea, we might say it, a good English colloquial way of putting it would be he, he doesn't speak out of both sides of his mouth. The idea is that he doesn't say one thing to one person about a situation and then go to another person and paint that situation very differently. He's consistent in his speech. Now, it's interesting that that qualification is here because it it tells us that this man serving in this role is likely going to be serving people, not just things and stuff. Deacons are not expected just to be building managers or janitors. They're actually going to be dealing with people in in dealing with their responsibilities. And the idea is that when they talk to people and they listen to people and they seek to help people, they might hear some sensitive information about a person. And we want a man who knows how to keep his mouth shut. We want a man who knows when it's time not to share details about a situation that he knows about. We want a man who exercises some discretion with his words. That's the picture here. He's not going to deceive people by painting a situation in two different ways or talk about things that he shouldn't be talking about with other people, exposing people's information in an unhelpful way, a harmful way. So he should not be, must not be double-tongued in that way. Thirdly, he must not be addicted to much wine. This is the aspect of being controlled by a substance If he should be a drinker of alcohol, it must not be something that controls him or impairs his judgment. That's the point here. The the men serving in this role need to walk in such a way that they don't put things into their body that impair their judgment. Because a deacon must have good judgment. Must be able to make good decisions. Not just about things, but about people and situations. And so if... Drinking of wine is in the picture at all. It must be in a way that does not impair that man's judgment or control him in any way. That's the issue here. Number four, he must not be greedy for dishonest gain. That tells us that a man serving in the role of deacon may very well and often does handle finances. The finances that the church, the members of the church, the people who come into this place contribute to the body. And so he's going to have to take responsibility to those finances. And so we need men who are trustworthy in that regard. Now, if you think about it, 
We know that this is the kind of issue because Jesus had a man in his midst who handled the finances who was not trustworthy. His name was Judas. And there's a warning there. And yet, mystery of all, Jesus entrusted the finances to him, knowing his character. But we are instructed here to be sure that we entrust the finances that are shared among this body to men who are not going to pocket it for themselves. Or also men who are not going to skirt the details. They're going to manage the money well by making sure the budget balances and the expenses go where they need to go. And so the man in this role must be shown to be a good handler of money and faithful in that regard because he's not handling his own money only, but the money of the body. And so it's important that he must be not greedy for dishonest gain because that will be the temptation all the time. I mean, let's just put it in those terms. A man who's handling a lot of money is going to be faced with a temptation to do something with it that he shouldn't. That temptation is there. We need men who are able to resist that temptation and overcome it consistently and faithfully. Number five in verse nine, he must hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. This is, the mystery of the faith is a way of talking about the gospel, essentially. The mystery of the faith is a reference to the gospel message. This is parallel to the qualification for elders that they must be able to teach. But here, able to teach the scriptures, the gospel message in particular. But for deacons, they are not expected to teach. They may teach if they have that ability, but they are not expected to teach the scriptures. But they are expected to hold on to. That word is a very strong word. Hold on to the gospel with a clear conscience. What does he mean? He means that a deacon... Is, should be expected that at times they're going to need to articulate what they believe. And they need to be able to do that. They need to be so deeply convinced of the truth of the gospel that there's no question in their mind about who they're following or what he's done for them. There needs to be no question in a man's mind about what God has done in Jesus for their salvation and for the world's salvation. That needs to be cinched up and held on to really, really tightly. This need, a deacon must be a man of deep conviction about the truth of the gospel. He doesn't, he's not going to be expected to stand up in front of a bunch of people and explain it or teach it or expound the scriptures. If he has that ability, he might at times. But that is not an expectation of this man, and so he doesn't have to have that qualification. But he is expected to understand the gospel and to be able to articulate it and to hold on to it really, really tightly. It matters what you believe because you're working with people, not just stuff, not just buildings and grounds. You're working with people who need Jesus and that means if you serve in the role of a deacon, you may have opportunities to talk about Jesus with other people. And you need to be able to do that. Number six. Well, before we say number six, really, when we come to verse 11, so we already looked at verse 10. Verse 11 is a little bit controversial, as you might know or can imagine. It introduces women into the picture here. And the Greek word is just the word for woman, but it can mean wife. 
And so we have to kind of make a decision here about what's going on. And I'm not going to go into great detail here, um, but different folks obviously take this in different ways. Some look at verse 11 and say that uh, Paul is introducing the, the uh, office of a deaconess or a woman who serves in the role of deacon. And then he lists a few qualifications for a woman who might serve in that role. Others say that this is a qualification, a set of qualifications listed for the wives of men who are going to serve in this role. I am, and I'll admit freely, that I have been on both sides of that fence. I have been on both ends of that spectrum at different times in my life. So I'll tell you where I sit today. And uh, I think the ESV is right here best in saying that we're talking about wives. That's my perspective, and that's what I'll share with you now, and I'll, exp- I'll give you one reason why. Um, I think the, the qualifications listed here in verse 11 are essentially identical to the qualifications listed earlier for deacons. And so it seems odd to me if Paul were introducing uh, the, uh, the idea of a woman serving in the role of deacon, that he could have just said, deacons, whether male or female, and then they meet these qualifications, rather than repeating himself and listing the same qualifications again, um, because it would be the same office, it would just be uh, women holding that office uh, in addition to men. And so I think he's talking about wives here, and I think there's a reason for that. Uh, Ultimately, the, the kinds of things that deacons do, the kinds of service that they tend toward, doesn't exercise the kind of authority over the body of Christ that the uh, responsibilities of elders, overseers, and pastors do. And therefore, they may very well and very happily be very involved in the service of their husbands, in the service of the deacon. They may be participating. Now, that doesn't mean that Ron should expect Lori to climb a ladder and change a light bulb for him in here. Um, He might, and she could if she wanted to. But... The idea would be the reality that deacons serve people. And at times, that will mean deacons serving women. And it's very fitting and very appropriate to a deacon's, for a deacon's wife to be involved in that process. So that's a little bit of why I think what I think there. Um, let me just read what it says. So, the wives of deacons then must be dignified. Same word as earlier on. They must carry themselves well. Be and carry themselves with dignity. They must not be slanderers. Now, this is a different word from before, but it's the same kind of idea. How they use their words is an issue. The wife must not be one who is given to gossiping about others because the nature of their service alongside their deacon husband may involve them in knowing sensitive information about other people in the body. And it's important for them to be able to hold that in and not share it for other people in a, in a harmful way. They must not be slanderous. Thirdly, they must be sober-minded or literally sober. The, the word has as its first meaning sober in the sense of alcohol. And that would parallel what he said earlier about the deacon himself who must not be addicted to much wine. And so she too must be sober in that she doesn't allow substances to control her or restrain her or impair her judgment. Now that carries over into being sober-minded more generally. The deacon and his wife both must be of good judgment. They must not allow substances or other things to impair their judgment. 
And finally, he gives a catch-all term for the wives. Faithful in all things. What does that mean? (laughs) I think it means faithful in all the rest of these qualifications. Okay, Faithful in all these other things. Contextually limited on the all things there. And then he moves right back into talking about deacons. the, The man who serves in this office in verse 12. And he stays in the home. So he's been talking, I think, about the deacon's wife. And he stays in the home. And now he shifts over to the marriage relationship itself. The deacon must be husband of one wife. Literally, you may know that is, uh, could be translated a one-woman man. One-woman man. What does that mean? What is uh, husband of one wife trying to get after? What's the point? I think the primary point is faithfulness in his marriage. His relationship with his wife must be faithful. That is, he is committed and devoted to her and to her alone, the woman to whom he's married at the time. This raises all kinds of questions about, well, does that mean that a man who has been divorced and remarried could serve in the office of deacon or elder? And I think this is not necessarily prohibiting that reality. But you need to know, that if a man has a divorce in their past, the circumstances of that divorce need to be discussed and evaluated really, really closely. The issue is character. Not past character, but character today. So I don't think that a divorce in a man's past necessarily by itself automatically note those qualifiers, necessarily by itself automatically disqualifies a man from serving in either of these offices. depends on the circumstances. John MacArthur, again, is helpful in this regard. He says about this qualification, the idea is not that he has only one wife, but that he is solely devoted to the woman who is his wife. Having one wife does not necessarily reflect one's character. But being single-minded in devotion to the one woman who is your wife does. Think about it. All of these qualifications are about character. And just the fact that you've been married to one woman for a long time and never been divorced doesn't say anything about your character. You could have a very unhappy marriage for 40 years. And you could be an absolute jerk all 40 of those years doesn't say anything necessarily, just that you've been married only once. Nor that there is a divorce is necessarily indicative of your character. And that's what's on display and being evaluated at the time. We could say more, but let's not. Let's press on and look at these. In, in any case, when we're evaluating men to fill these roles, we're not going to, again, we're not going to treat this like a checklist and just sit there and say, well, I think he's got that, I think he's got that. We're going to you're going to have to kind of give some evidence of these things over the course of time, and we're going to have to talk about your life and the way that it's looked and the things that have happened. And these things need to be evaluated very carefully on a case-by-case basis. Finally, the final qualification listed there in 1 Timothy 3.12 is that they manage their children and households well. So again, staying inside the home. We talked a little bit about this last week. The issue is not, I don't think, Are your children following Jesus? The issue is, are you as a father 
involved in raising your children. So Ephesians 6, 4, I think it is. Fathers, do not exasperate your children, but bring them up in the instruction and discipline of the Lord Jesus is implied there. So the question on the table here is, Father, husband, are you taking responsibility for the instruction and discipline of your children? Now, you may very well entrust that primary instruction and discipline to your wife. Or you may even faithfully and wisely entrust their education and their discipline to a school system. But don't think that by doing that, you are absolving yourself from responsibility. You are entrusting them to other people is for you to oversee. Whether it's the school system or your wife at home, you, sir must be involved and must be aware and must be intentional about instructing your children and disciplining your children, particularly in relationship to the Lord Jesus. You, you, Father, you, husband, are particularly responsible for talking to your children about Jesus and ensuring that they know the truth about Jesus, regardless of what they hear in a school system. You must bear that responsibility. It is not to be passed off to your wife alone. She may be faithful and incredibly good at instructing them and teaching them in the home, but you are responsible to make sure that's going on and to reinforce it. They need to hear it from you, Father. They need to hear it from you. And so that's what's on display here. A man who would serve in the office of a deacon needs to show that he has been training his children, pointing them to Jesus. And I think the reason for that is that's part of their responsibility as deacons. They're going to be in a position where they're going to interact with people in the body and they're going to need to be able to point those people to Jesus. They're going to need to be able to, to they're, going to, they're going to need to be involved in the process of discipline in the body. When they see as a deacon somebody sinning, they don't take it to the elders. They're supposed to go directly to the other person and talk to them about their sin and point them to Jesus. Faith in Jesus, repentance from their sin. Now that's true of everybody in the body. That's not just deacons. But a deacon must be particularly ready to do that. And the training ground for that is in your house. When you see your kid acting awful and rebellious, do you engage them, point them away from their sin and to the Savior? If you can do that with your kids, you can do it with these grown-ups in the building. Well, let's close our time by considering the service of the deacon. The service of the deacon. Now, I just should mention in passing, just as a trivia note, partially, there are six individuals in the New Testament referred to as deacon, with the Greek word diakonos. Now, most of the time, we're not talking about anybody serving in the office of deacon, ironically. This passage in 1 Timothy 3 and one mention in Philippians 1 in the address are the only two places in the New Testament, I think, where we have a reference to the office of deacon. But six individuals are named with this term, are referred to as deacons, and none of them served in the office of deacon, ironically. I'll give you the six names just for your, so you trivia buffs out there will know. 
when it comes up. Uh, Paul referred to himself as diakonos several times. Apollos is referred to as a deacon. Phoebe, a woman introduced in Romans chapter 16, verse 1, is referred to as a deacon, diakonos. Tychicus, I think in Colossians, and Epaphras, also in Colossians, are both referred to as deacons. And Timothy himself is referred to as diakonos. But again, none of those folks, I don't think, as far as we know from Scripture, actually served in the office of deacon. But they are servants or ministers, is how our Bible translations will often translate the term in reflection, in connection with these, these six folks. And then secondly, we can go further and we can see the reality from the Scriptures that all believers are to be deacons. All believers are to be deacons. Mark 9.35, Jesus says, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Diakonas. He's talking about all of his followers. That's the ideal. We should seek to be the servant of all. Diakonas to all. That should be our attitude. Whatever ministry assignment you've received from God, view it in terms of serving Serving God and serving the members of this church. If you're not sure what God might be assigning you to do, talk to your shepherding elder or any of us elders. We'll help you look at your life and identify where God has equipped you and seek to connect you to the needs in our body. We have needs. You could be called and equipped by God to meet those needs. Sometimes the connection just needs to be made. But I again address the men, as I've done the last couple of weeks. If you'd like to pursue serving in this official capacity as a deacon, and you see evidence of these qualifications being produced by the Spirit in your life, we always need to go back to that. We don't drum up these qualifications on our own. These are produced by the Holy Spirit in us. And if you see these being produced in your life by the Spirit, come talk with one of the elders. Or... If any of you in the body see a man in this body who seems to fit the bill, point him out to us. And we'll start that conversation. But finally, we need to consider Jesus, the model deacon. Jesus himself is referred to as diakonos. That shouldn't surprise us. He is the epitome of service. Romans 15, 8 and 9, Paul writes, For I tell you that Christ became a servant... Diakonas, to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. So Jesus' service was for all, to the circumcised, to the Jew, but with reference to the Gentile. Jesus' deacon service is for all. And what does His service look like? Mark ten forty five. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, diaconeo, and to give His life as a ransom for many. Jesus' deacon service is the very heart of the gospel. The gospel message, which deacons in the church must hold on to, not just in their head, as doctrine to be understood and affirmed, but as displaying the very shape of their lives and ministry. Serving as a deacon involves giving up one's life. Serving as a deacon involves laying aside your own priorities, your perceived rights, 
in order to do things that benefit others. Jesus showed the way. And just as deacon service today is spiritual ministry focused on meeting physical needs, Jesus' deacon service was spiritual ministry that included meeting physical needs. Jesus laid down His life as a sacrifice that purchased not only our freedom from spiritual slavery to sin, not only our forgiveness from our Heavenly Father, but also purchased our very bodies. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. He bought us, body and soul, at the cost of His life, with the payment of His blood. His service did not just bring spiritual benefit to us. It brought physical, bodily benefit to us. And the final aspect of this ransom, this redemption that Jesus accomplished on the cross, is the redemption of our bodies. The final transformation of our lowly bodies into glorious bodies like His. Philippians 3, 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven right now. Our citizenship today is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. This is the ultimate outcome for us of Jesus' deacon service to us. The motive of His service is love. The shape of His service is the cross. And the goal of His service is the full enjoyment of eternal life for all His people. This should be mirrored in the lives of all of His servants. But this should be mirrored profoundly in the life of those men who serve in the office of deacon. Deacon's service should be motivated by love for the church. Deacon's service should be sacrificial in nature, cross-shaped. And deacons should serve for the sake of the ultimate enjoyment of eternal life for all of God's people. If we turn back to 1 Timothy 3 for just a moment, I want to close finally, ultimately, really for real this time, with the reward of the deacon in verse 13. I read it. Let me read it and comment on it briefly. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. He says there's a twofold reward for serving as deacons. First, he says, you gain a good standing for yourself. What's that? Well, it points essentially to you gaining a good reputation in the body. Now, that's a dangerous thing. It could puff you up real big to think that, well, I'm going to serve so that I might be thought well of. A good reputation is a good thing, a godly thing, and something to be wanted and ascribed and, and aspired to, but not for your own sake. We want to have a good reputation among people in the body 
that points ultimately to Jesus, to the work that he's done in us, to the qualities that the Spirit has empowered in us. So ironically, the service of the deacon, which is often behind the scenes, we often see the results of it, like the light bulbs work, and the grass is short, but we don't see the man on the lawnmower, and we don't see the man on the ladder very often. But when we know the men who do those things for us, we should respect them. We should see them and hold them in high esteem. But again, not for their own sake, but because they're serving the Lord Jesus and serving you. But the second reward is a more personal and intimate reward. The reward is they also, deacons who serve well, also gain great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I think what Paul is referring to there is serving in the role and the office of deacon builds the deacon's faith. You want a stronger faith? You want to trust Jesus more consistently in your life? Get in the game. Serve the body of Christ. Whether in an official capacity or not, you want to grow in your faith? The way is by obeying and serving the body. Ironically, you serve the body and it has an impact on your ability to trust, your, trust Jesus. And I think the reason for that is when you're serving the body, you're not looking at yourself. You're looking outward. And when you're looking outward away from yourself, you can trust Jesus better. You're not so caught up in your own struggles and your own problems and your own weaknesses and your own difficulties. You're looking outward, focusing on helping other people And the things that you're not paying attention to, like the hard things in your life and the struggles in your life, you're not paying attention to those things because you're giving your energies to serving the body. That means you have to trust Jesus with those things that are going on in your own life. You have to. And the cool thing is, He's going to take care of them. He's promised. He's promised to look after you and to care for you. So if you want to grow in your faith, serve. Serve. Whether you want to serve as, as a deacon or whether you're qualified to serve as a deacon, just serve. Get in the game. Get involved. Find somebody who needs something and fill the need. There's an old movie, animated movie called Robots. I guess it was out in the 90s, early 2000s. I don't remember. But the line that stuck with me through that whole movie, the main character keeps on telling it, see a need, fill a need. That's a good philosophy for the Christian. See a need, fill a need. You see a needy person among you or some kind of need that's being talked about, evaluate your life, evaluate your circumstances, and see if God might be equipping you and calling you to meet that need personally. That's what service is all about, meeting the needs of the people. And when you meet a physical need among the body of Christ, it is a spiritual reality. You're meeting the need of someone who has the Holy Spirit living within them. And hopefully, ideally, you're meeting that need not just by giving of your material resources or giving of yourself, but your, of your physical energies, but you're meeting that need out of the qualities and the love that the Spirit of God Himself has produced in you. Very spiritual kinds of activities. So let's pray that we would all become very service-oriented, whether we serve in the role, the official role of deacon or not. But let's pray.